Is there any end in sight to Vladimir Putin's villainous attack on Ukraine's towns, cities, and civilians? Is there any way for the United States effectively to thwart him without making dangerous missteps? And what about the dramatic inflation now hitting Americans at the gas pump in the grocery store? Is it all due to the war? And in the meanwhile, President Biden's nominee to the Supreme Court is making her case before the U.S. Senate Judiciary Committee. Are you impressed? We'll talk about all this and more in today's episode of Independent Outlook. Hi, everybody. I'm Graham Walker coming to you today from the Independent Institute in Oakland, California, right across the bay from San Francisco, where we try to give you a take on the issues of the day that doesn't fit into standard categories, but takes an independent look. And of course, I am joined today by my key colleagues here. First of all, David Thoreau, founder and president of Independent Institute. Welcome, David. Thank you. Good to see you. Glad to see you again. Also by my friend and colleague, Williamson Bill Evers, who is the director of our Center on Educational Excellence here at the Independent Institute. Hi, Bill. Hi. Good to be back. Good to be back with you. Good to be back with all of our friends who, by the way, are joining us, of course, from various platforms today, including our YouTube page, Facebook page, Vimeo, Twitter, and, of course, our friends at thinkspot.com, whom we give a special welcome to. So uh, today, there's a lot to talk about over in Ukraine. Uh, we are witnessing uh, the apparent pushback of Ukrainian forces against Russian forces. There's claims, at least, that uh, the... Uh, Ukrainian forces have retaken a suburb of Kiev. Uh, and in the meanwhile, Vladimir Putin has started quite a crackdown to silence dissent at home. I've read this morning that he has banned Facebook and Instagram in Russia, uh, that he has criminalized any news organizations that fail to characterize it as a, mil a military action as opposed to what apparently really is an invasion. Uh, he squelched independent news outlooks, uh, suppressed casualty figures, deployed riot police, uh, it's really quite a crackdown in Russia. Uh, what do you make of the situation, starting with David? Well, it's, uh, you know, we've discussed him as an oligarch before, and he's proven again that he is that. Uh, he's gone into a, a full war mode. He's arresting anybody who even describes it as a war or an invasion. Um, and of course, he's on the records that he believes that Ukraine is not a country, it's actually part of Russia proper. Um, but uh, I think that he uh, increasingly is being shown to be a bad strategist and that things are not going according to what he wanted. I think he believed that in going a certain, at least in the eastern part of Ukraine, uh, the Russian truce would be welcomed with flowers and uh, hugs and kisses and so forth, and that has not happened. So I think... Uh, uh, he has actually misinterpreted the history of the area, of Ukraine itself. Uh, the people have uh, their similarities uh, to some extent in language and religion and so forth, but the Ukrainians are, are uh, by and large far more Western. Uh, and even though uh, the government in, in Ukraine is also cracked down on opposition parties and so forth, uh, I think we are seeing a difference almost a cultural clash mm -hmm. uh, on the battlefield. Yeah, that's pretty fascinating. I mean, certainly there is a lot of uh, shared history between the two, but at the same time, it's very, very clear that Ukrainians don't want to be made part of Russia against their will. That seems right. uh, more than obvious. 
uh, including course, Russian uh, ethnicities. Fascinatingly uh, enough. And of course, right. I've also understood that uh, President Zelensky of Ukraine was himself born in Russia and that Russian was his first language, Ukrainian his second. So right. um, notwithstanding that kind of shared background, he and his people are not interested in being forcibly uh, incorporated in Russia. Uh, and yet Putin is determined. <clears throat> so question arises. Well, well bombs, and, bombs and bayonets are not known for being persuasive uh, for hearts and minds. And I'll I say, think that's I mean, what we're seeing. This kind of, of a malignant attack will poison the Russian character in the minds of Ukrainians for generations at this point. Yeah. Uh, it seems I like think it's really- in the minds of Russians too. And in the minds of Russians too, exactly. Yeah. Bill, I think you had a comment. Let me give you a chance. Oh, I, I certainly have a number of comments on this topic. I'm reminded of a novella by uh, Nikolai Gogol, who was kind of a Russian but Ukrainian <laughs> novelist, uh, short story writer very famous, maybe the most famous, and uh, famously wrote the story of the Inspector General. But he wrote a novel, a novella called Taras Bulba that was made into a movie when I was young, and uh, it's about fighting in the Ukraine region. And in it, uh, the forces of Russia are noble Cossacks, <laughs> who are defending the Russian Orthodox Church against the westernized, uh, Polish-influenced uh, Western people in the Ukraine area. And the Cossacks mobilize 120,000 people in their armed forces and push back. The... So that is, that is the view that Putin has and that he is trying to spread in Russia. This is not so much a return of the Soviet Union, and certainly the ideology of the Soviet Union, Marxism-Leninism is not here, as much as it is the return of czarism, uh, czarist Russia, uh, in his most recent speech in a stadium with many kind of fascistic symbols and chants, Putin invoked a czarist admiral who made successful and was like militarily successful in the Black Sea. Uh, so this, this is sort of the model. Now, in contrast to this, uh, it's important to remember that uh, Ukraine, positive, in a, we can say in a positive sense, has this Polish and Western influence. So an historian, Yaroslav Ratus, I can't pronounce his name, Horusak, wrote a piece in the New York Times. And, and Herzog has said that because of this Western influence, somewhat mediated through Poland, Poland has a history of uh, some freedom of assembly, opposition to centralized power, mm -hmm. and uh, organized civil society. And public uh, assembly. Yeah, public, yeah, right. freedom of assembly. And of right. course, part of that civil society is a church that's very strong mm -hmm. and more independent of the state than it tends to be in Orthodox, uh, <clears throat> Russian Orthodox or Greek Orthodox or Byzantine-influenced society. So that's kind of, all that feeds into the American view of all this, which is authoritarianism versus uh, liberal democracy. But mm -hmm. as David was pointing out, 
Um, not only is there a corruption problem that's, of course, more serious in Russia, but it's quite serious in Ukraine. Uh, the whole Burisma, Hunter Biden thing is all part of this. But I, a funny thing happened the other day. The New York Times sent a query to Candace Owens, the commentator, saying, well, uh, please tell us why you're spouting the Russian line on Ukraine. And she said, I'm so sorry. I learned everything about corruption in the Ukraine from the New York Times and the Washington Post and <laughs> sent back 10 links to <laughs> the stories in the last two years oh about this. So there is a problem there. And as David's also pointing out, the, the president of Poland has just banned the activity of oh, 11 political parties. President of Ukraine. Party. I'm sorry. Uh, we all make little. We knew what you meant, Bill. <laughs> okay. So he uh, he's outlawed, uh, suspended, banned eleven political parties, including ones that have condemned the Russian invasion. And he's uh, for, he had done some shutdown of TV that was associated with his opponent in the election, but now he's ended all private television and forcibly merged it into the state television system. Well, it's wartime crisis, I guess, huh? Yeah, I think he thinks it this way. Now, there's another aspect to this that we, we need to consider, which is the realism idea. So the realism idea is great power maneuvering, lesser powers trying to navigate amongst the bumping great powers. So this is a, one way that a lot of people look at the Ukraine-Russia conflict. So Russia is this immense continental power, and uh, it has flat plain that you know we sometimes in the north we think of the North German plain, and in the south we think of the steppes. And Russia has been invaded. I mean, most recently by Germany in World War One and World War Two across these plains. So it's part of their strategic depth, and they worry about it. Now that doesn't mean there can't be other kinds of accommodation. Uh, under communism, Russia, Stalinism, Stalinist Russia, Russia made accommodations with Finland. So in the 1940s, after the Rus two Russo-Finnish wars, but a funny thing was that Britain almost sided with Finland against Stalinist Russia at this time, even though Finland was a democracy allied with Nazi Germany. And Britain and another battlefield was allied against Nazi Germany. So very crazy things that can happen in wartime. Austria in the 1950s to really kind of the present was also a neutral power from which Russia, uh, communist Russia, uh, withdrew. But the problem was that after the so-called revolution of dignity in Kiev, uh, the Russians panicked. And I mean, in a sense, the first the Ukrainians panicked and had this revolution. And then the Russians panicked at that and seized Crimea and caused this secession in the Donbass that was Russian influence controlled, subsidized, backed, however you want to call it. In so this, this, right, in the Far East, this kind of blocked a neutral Austria-Finland type solution. And now that they've been in this war, the different off-ramps that people talk about are very hard because they are. Ukraine is kind of like Poland before World War II. It's got German, militant Germany on one side that 
you know, resents the fact that there are a lot of Poland was made out of parts of Imperial Germany and militant communist Russia in the East. Uh, in the 1920s, communist Russia had tried to seize Poland, the so-called miracle on the Vistula. They stopped Kolsudski, stopped Trotsky in his tracks. Great heroic time for Polish history, but it made that they couldn't turn to Russia against Poland. So what happened? They were seized from each side, and there was another partition of Poland in 1939. So you see that a parallel with Ukraine's case. I do, because it means that who Ukraine is having trouble, and these different presidential elections back and forth show this. Are they going to try and unite with EU, European Union, and NATO, or are they going to try and work with an accommodation with Russia, and they keep kind of violently swinging the pendulum back and forth, and it gets them in more trouble each time they do. And we, uh, we being NATO, gave a, a kind of worst possible sol solution to this. We kind of promised an umbrella of protection, but in the never, never future. Then Russia took that to be a possible near-term future, and now here we are. Well, it's also that the, uh, the Ukrainians were... Uh, uh, promised protection by giving up important right, nuclear, nuclear weapons. weapons, and they could be part of NATO and and uh, the European Union and so forth. So I, I think Western elites are responsible for uh, a lot of the setup and pushing NATO further east. Uh, I recently, I think just a couple of days ago, uh, was looking at a report where. Um, there are certain parties that are pushing for NATO to expand into Southeast Asia uh, because mm. of Taiwan. So uh, this wow. this view of collective security is totally out of whack. And of course, the participating members are depending on the U.S. to fund it. And uh, so the Russians view NATO as basically a front for the U.S. And uh, so. Uh, the more recent uh, revelation also that the U.S. is funding all these biolabs. Uh, now we understand that Eco Health Alliance, getting back to Anthony Fauci, has been a central player in a lot of these biolabs. That's labs. the same Eco Health Alliance that was doing investigations or lab stuff in Wuhan. Right, exactly. Right. So, <clears throat> it's, so uh, you know, the Russians, you know, see a lot of this stuff and it makes them nervous because of the history that, that Bill is is so adequately describing. But I think that uh, the, the, the tug of war and the pull for an area like Ukraine, which the Poles, the Poles were also subjected to earlier, and I think now they're seeing it come back, uh, is a serious problem. And but so you have the Washington establishment uh, pushing for uh, engagement by the US in the war. Um, and really sort of throwing uh, discretion and prudence out the window as far as what Putin uh, might take as a, as a serious threat to the Russian uh, Federation itself. I mean, I, you know, the push to have no-fly zones and to provide aircraft and, and right. you know, there's, no, there's no limit to what many of these people have been advocating. You know, so I the whole situation, you know, here we have Ukraine, which is not a vital, has any vital interest for the United States 
from a national security standpoint, uh, and yet it's being tossed into the center of world conflict that could threaten World War III is an indication of how out of control this whole situation is getting. You know, I would like to <clears throat> sort of distinguish two kinds of issues that we've been touching on in different ways here. One is um, <clears throat> a comparison of sort of the intrinsic civic character of Russia now and Ukraine now, um, conceding that both of them suffer from problems with corruption and uh, some crackdowns on liberties and so forth. I think still there is a meaningful comparative difference between Ukraine and Russia. Right. The, and the Russia Ukraine. is invading. Russia is and Russia invading. is invading. Right. So yeah. and, and, on the one and, hand, there's a moral and, and civic comparison in which Ukraine comes out far better than Russia. But then there's the question of what should Western military power, including the U.S., do about it? Um, well, so I, think, but I, I think David is getting at the, the part of the problem here. Part of this is visions of hugely more influential NATO dancing in some people's minds. Mm -hmm. Now, in, in reality, NATO is supposed to help protect the United States, but it's kind of hard to see how Montenegro or Lithuania mm -hmm. uh, adds to U.S. protection. It's really a potential trap where well, that, that's one why of I was these making... smaller countries gets into trouble with one of its neighbors that's not a NATO member or maybe is a NATO member <laughs> and triggers Article 5. Mm -hmm. uh, so that's not a good thing. Uh, Niall Ferguson of the Hoover Institution, rather well-known uh, historian, uh, had a very interesting column in Bloomberg, and he says that from his conversations and close watch over the Biden administration, that their goal is not to end the war. Their goal is to continue the war, to try what? to bleed, bleed Russia yes. dry. Oh, I see. That they want to feed uh, enough arms and materiel into the Ukraine to keep it going, but not enough to provoke a direct fight between the United States. So we're acting as a kind of low-level belligerent, and Putin keeps pointing this out. And you know, one of the reasons that the, the MiGs never went is because Putin said, okay, wherever the MiGs fly from, we're gonna bomb that airport. Right. Mm -hmm. And so the Poles said, oh, well, we'll send it to West Germany where there's an American Air Force base <laughs> and the Americans can send them into Ukraine. And that's mm -hmm. when the Americans said, oh no, no. We, don't want, <laughs> right. we don't want our Air Force bomb, our Air Base bomb. So the, part of the problem is that they, they have this idea, it's not, so we've had in the past neutrality acts in the United States. Mm -hmm. And part of those laws were that the U.S. was not going to subsidize or encourage sale of arms to belligerents. We're not doing that. We're only arming one belligerent here. Uh, I mean, it's a sympathetic, you know, group to be giving them the arms to. I'm very sympathetic to the plight of the Ukrainians. However, I don't really want to see the United States dragged into, or sucked into World War III or perceived yes. by uh, various steps uh, into World War III. Uh, one of the other interesting aspects of this is the economic warfare mm -hmm. and how U.S. companies are reacting to this. So some of it is compulsory things. The EU has told 
uh, Facebook and various other media platforms, they have to disengage from Russia. Of course, Russia is also banning them. So that's, mm-hmm. you know, happening. Uh, but some companies are resisting this sort of thing. So an interesting case is Coke Industries. And Coke Industries has a small glass company in uh, Russia that it owns. And it said, we're staying. We're not going to fire our employees. Um, we're not going to take uh, our products away from our customers there. And uh, David Henderson is quoted in the article about this. David Henderson's an economist uh, in the Monterey area. He said, Hoover, and he used to be at the Naval Postgraduate School in Monterey. And he said, look, if you let the Russians seize the Coke glass factory, you're just improving the assets of the Russian government. Why should we be supporting that? So, uh, you know, a lot of this stuff is virtue signaling by these companies Mm -hmm. to please their uh, quite excited, understandably so, customers in the West. But it's not necessarily. Part of the problem is that these sanctions and these boycotts and stuff are painted with such a broad brush. They're not really targeted on the political decision makers in the Putin mm-hmm. government, which is much stronger than the oligarchs. The oligarchs, these are the big business people, are often connected to Putin, but it's nothing like in the Yeltsin days when they really controlled the government. Putin and the secret police. Right. Yes, They're I the think group that really controls this government. And right. so we exaggerate the influence of the oligarchs. It's those people in his top 20 or top 100 inner circle that people ought to be boycotting. And if governments want to target somebody, hey, that makes sense. I'm, I'm, I'm just saying I, the, goal, the goal currently of the Biden administration is to have Putin out, to throw him out, have him thrown out, have a coup. And they're, they're trying to bleed him dry and, you know, cause tremendous hardship to the Russian people uh, in order to precipitate that. Uh, I, I myself think peace would be a better goal. Yeah, peace would be uh, way of better. Course, it'd be it'd be better if we got more status, modest and more attainable. Status, it'd be better to have the status quo before the war, uh, antebellum status quo would be better. Be better still if Putin would get out of the Donbass and get out of Crimea. But I think, you know, the, he's not going to get out of Crimea. The, the Biden administration wants war. No, I think um, that's right. And, and, and they're I, and they're the moderates compared to the oh, Congress. I'm, David, right. go ahead. I also think that uh, it also reflects. Well, there's two things. One is getting back to this uh, grander geopolitical analysis. Um, there, you know, the Biden crowd and, and Biden just gave a talk to the uh, um, business roundtable about how you know this is basically um, the new world order, and uh, it only happens mm-hmm. every three or four generations. He said, and we need to prepare for it, and we need to be leading it. And right. so uh, there's a green component to it. There's a business mm-hmm. component to it. There's a, uh, you know, sort of. It welfare. sounds kind of glorious. Yeah, I mean, a whole <laughs> new world order. So anyway, what I was going to say was that the green part of it um, is that the progressives 
absolutely refuse to accept any uh, anything but com whatever can be done to shut down the fossil fuel industry in the United States. And if they really, you know, if their priorities were right uh, to uh, essentially disarm Putin, we've talked about this before, they'd be in favor of deregulating oil and gas and allowing leasing on federal lands and having the Keystone pipeline proceed you know, mm -hmm. on and on, but they refuse. And Biden knows that this is a key part of his constituency. It's a key part of his funders. Mm -hmm. And uh, you know the green corporate welfare is a great, huge part of the recent mega trillion dollar bills that have been passed. And uh, even though the the <clears throat> polls show that most people uh, do not consider that to be important, and they want to have energy uh, that is inexpensive, and they're in favor of these measures. We're, we're so gonna... they they the 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 moving of the of the pieces on the chessboard is they believe that they can use these sanction policies, including cultural sanctions. They don't really care whether it hurts the Russian people uh, or, quite frankly, the Ukrainian people. Uh, they believe this is a way, as Bill, I think uh, Ferguson is right. But I do think that the bigger, the bigger fallacy uh, is this view that there's going to be some sort of new world order, some sort of global central planning. Mm -hmm. You know, the World Economic Forum's crackpot vision uh, of central planning. And I think that's a total, total fantasy, total folly. The more they push it, the more they're going to get pushed back. And that's partly what's happening to Putin. Putin is trying to essentially, as Bill is saying, try to reestablish the czarist Russian orbit. And the more he pushes it, the more ruthless he gets, and the more ruthless he gets, the more pushback he gets. Now, yeah, he may well win. You know, Doug McGregor and others think it's hopeless. Ukrainians have no chance. But, you know, who knows? I mean, I think what we've seen within, within uh, certainly the last 100 years, last 50 years, is the rise of nationalism uh, in opposition to the European Union mm -hmm. and to all these other uh, high-minded uh, globalist uh, efforts. So uh, I, I think Bill is absolutely right. The thing that that uh, the Ukraine should do is they should cut a deal with the Russians and uh, become neutral, uh, say goodbye to the European Union and to NATO and people who are pushing for that. Well, he's already uh, said goodbye to NATO. Right. But I'm saying making it, you know, a, a clear <laughs> message uh, that they can't be bought off. You, you know, getting back to Biden and so forth, you know, the Bidens, as Bill was saying, uh, have a long history of corruption in, in the Ukraine. Um, ironically, they were trying to, to uh, make the case that it was Trump that had the corruption when they were the ones really doing it. You know, so, what, what, what fascinates so, me as we discuss this is the reminder in President Biden's recent speech about the aspiration to a worldwide new world order. Um, in some ways, that aspiration is far more limitless uh, and universal than what is apparently Putin's aspiration to restore a czarist uh, sphere of influence. A new world order encompasses the whole world. Right. And so, it, it, it's a view. I mean, it's, it's uh, you just imagine the cost to police such an entity. Wow. And to keep people loyal. <clears throat> With all the different languages and traditions and communities and mm -hmm. nations, one, one of the problems that many libertarians have is they don't recognize the existence of nations. Right. 
and the history of people. Uh, and so uh, these kind of things come back. And the best route is to give people the chance to make their own choices. And, and these different uh, institutions and systems come into existence. It's not perfect, but it certainly is better than either invading or trying to create some sort of new world order. There are people who are in favor of personal and economic liberty who would like to say, well, if we only had strong enough international institutions, they could force everyone to recognize individual liberty and individual economic freedom. Right. Um, so nation not building on a freedom, global freedom, scale. Freedom, freedom through world empire. <laughs> freedom through world empire. Yeah. Not yeah, recognizing I, I, I've that. Got a, I've got a comment on what David's okay. been saying, if I <laughs> okay. may. Yeah. Uh, so there's another interesting facet to this, and that has to do with international financial institutions. Right. So one of the interesting, uh, so you've seen this tremendous uh, economic uh, sanctions that have been put on Russia. And so this is actually setting off alarm bells in a lot of countries around the world because they say to themselves, well, if the U.S. and its friends have this much power over what can happen to an economy, they could do it to us over some other thing. So, mm -hmm. okay, well, so they're doing it over the invasion of the Ukraine. Maybe they're going to do it if we keep having uh, some kind of energy policy that yes. they don't like. Yes, they, exactly. So there's all these African and Latin American and South Asian and East Asian countries that might differ from the faculty of Yale Law School on what energy policy mm -hmm. they should be having. Maybe they even, uh, maybe even the Independent Institute disagrees with the Yale Law faculty on what energy policy. Uh, heaven be forbid. In the anyway, the point is, if they can mobilize the world financial system to crack down on countries over things, it's not obvious that these institutions, which, which perhaps falsely have been seen as kind of neutral and independent of American power and just sort of as go-between things, if they're really tools of U.S. foreign policy, then sets a whole new uh, perspective on things. Right. And, and I think... And China and other countries, of course, are going to try and take advantage of that. And yep. I, I, we, can't, we can't stop them from doing, trying to do that. But I think it's possibly an unforeseen consequence of the economic warfare we're seeing. We have yeah, I mean, a number I think of... The, the globalist advocates uh, are sort of cheerleading the point that isn't it, isn't it amazing that the West has come together in unison on Ukraine? But there, I think Bill's point is a bigger insight, which is that when the SWIFT uh, uh, boycott was put into effect, SWIFT is the Society That's a banking, for Worldwide Banking Exchange System. Right, yeah. the Society for Worldwide Interbank Financial Telecommunication, which is, of course, why it's called SWIFT, because no one can say the rest of it. Um, <laughs> but you did very that, well, David. Thank you. Yeah. So, <laughs> so the lesson that a lot of people are seeing is that well, the U.S. can just bully its way into whatever it's want. What if we what if we don't want to close our coal-fired energy plant or a nuclear plant or whatever? Right. And the uh, uh, and but of course one of the uh, other dimensions of it is the swift measure exempted oil and gas, and uh, so it's it's. But it doesn't have to. You know. It doesn't have to. That's right. Exactly. And the and the the Biden administration wants to push uh, 
doing everything it possibly can and as fast as it can to destroy the fossil fuel industry because of the phantom uh, false fear of climate destruction. Uh, and I, I, I guess I should make a pitch for our book, Hot Talk Cold Science, by the late Fred Singer, along with the climatologist David Legates and Anthony Lupo, which goes through not just the science of it, but the politics and the economics of this whole issue. Um, we have quite a few friends with us who are chiming in, you know, with their comments as we talk. <clears throat> uh, some of them we've addressed. I just want to point out that uh, one of our friends coming through ThinkSpot goes by the moniker Jaker, <clears throat> asked us uh, what the U.S. could do to take a posture that would work. He points out it's always easy to look back and say what we did wrong, but this present president has to deal with the situation at hand. I think between the two of you, you've, you've kind of laid out uh, a pathway that you think would be wiser. Uh, to, to, can you summarize like what your advice to President Biden is, uh, Bill? My advice is don't put up a no-fly zone or air cap, as it's sometimes called. Don't keep pushing more and more lethal weapons into the hands. In fact, mm -hmm. I would say don't become the arms supplier for an insurgency and try and be a good friend to facilitating peace and something as close as possible to the status quo ante. Our friend Jane is coming to us for, through our YouTube platform. She comments, how much do you think the Biden administration may want to keep the Ukraine matter going until the election? It could be we, considered- We've answered that. I yeah. think you've addressed yeah. that. It's a very interesting yeah. point. It's definitely a wag the dog, although the polls are not showing that Biden is He's getting He's not getting a, a big boost. Right. A, little, a little boost, but it's already yeah. vanishing. I think so. Yeah. But can you comment, Bill, on um, what Biden's ban on Russian oil imports means for us in the U.S.? And what about all this, you know, rising gas prices and inflation? Are we right to assume that the reason prices are going up at the gas pump and the supermarket is because of Vladimir Putin? No. Uh, it's adding mm -hmm. to the price, but the, the price of gasoline and other items were going up. Part of the general uh, monetary increase related to COVID relief programs related to big spending programs, some of which date back to President Trump, some of which date back to President Obama, and mm -hmm. so forth and so on. It's been building up. They monetize the debt. That's what leads to inflation. Now this constraint on oil supply and gas supply that stems from the war is adding on top of that. But the, 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 this was going on before, and it was going on so, so sometimes the market, of course, anticipates for future conflicts, but it's going on before and irrespective of the conflict in the Ukraine, the war in the Ukraine. People are in shock when they go to the gas pump. And some Including people are going to say, yeah, it's just ridiculous. I think Congress should pass a law or the President Biden should make them stop raising gas prices. How well would that work out? We have thousands of years of record on price controls. They never work. They right. always cause distortion. They always discourage production. They always cause black markets and corruption. They always at least cause, they lead to attempts to increase overall governmental power. It would be a horrible mistake. Fortunately, yeah, it, also, it, it, the Biden people 
have not leaped on that at this point. Good for them. That's right. Exactly. And and they always hurt the most right. politically yeah, impotent the, the politically people. Weak, the, right. That's politically right. weak, politically economically weak. vulnerable. Uh, now, the most recent example of this total failure was under Nixon uh, when you had the uh, spike in the oil prices. And uh, Nixon's response was wage and price controls and then rationing. Uh, a lot of people may not remember that uh, this included not just the creation of the 55 mile an hour speed limit on high federal highways, but also that they would ration gasoline uh, every other day. So those, based on your license plate number, you would be able to go to a gas station on the odd days or the even days. Uh, if the end of the month was the 31st, you, you, both groups could go that day. Um, my, and wife's, it just created my wife's enormous, license plate was all letters. So it created enormous <laughs> turmoil. And then it became sort of institutionalized. And the Washington establishment was petrified to get rid of the price controls because yep. their view was that this would have a huge spike. So to Reagan's credit, he, he abolished them in the, in the first couple of weeks. And almost immediately, the price of gasoline started going down. Uh, so I don't, I don't want us to forget the Supreme Court nominee. And I don't want us to forget some of the strange protests going on at law schools. Independent yeah, of the Supreme Court now. Okay. So uh, we, we set aside price controls. Not going to work. In fact, if, they, if we did price controls, there'd probably be shortages and gas stations would shut down. We'd be really worse off. So let's not go there. Uh, but on the question of the U.S. Supreme Court, um, you know, I noticed yesterday on CNN.com that there was an interesting opinion piece by Jeffrey Tubin. Yes, that Jeffrey Tubin. Um, who, who made an interesting analysis of uh, Judge uh, Katanji Brown-Jackson's uh, comments. He pointed out that she seemed to actually endorse a kind of originalist view of the meaning of legal text in the Constitution. She, she talked about, he complained, Jeffrey Tubrin complained that she talked about the limited role of the judiciary. And he complained that, that she said that her desire as a judge was to stay in her lane as a judge rather than as a legislator. And then Mike Lee, senator from Utah, uh, asked her a question. Uh, and <clears throat> she said that uh, uh, she believes that as a judge, you're bound by the text and what it meant to those who drafted it. So some people have pointed out that Antonin Scalia has won the argument <clears throat> from beyond the grave. That is his argument. That's right. And a, he has a whole book on interpretation of statutes. I mean, that's like, it's like an extension of interpretation of contracts. Right. It's very, to, very similar. So, so I think there's been a, a lot of, she, we don't have a lot of knowledge about her judicial philosophy, and that's why what you're but saying- But if that's her judicial philosophy, important. I kind of like it. Well, of course, there, there is a left of center originalist position. Uh, there's some faculty on the Yale Law School that hold to this position. I think it's better because at least there are arguing over things that make sense in terms of the meaning of having a constitution. I want to say an interesting thing happened in the hearing where Ted Cruz was questioning her. He asked, he, he, he was referring to a speech in which she had made some favorable comments about the 1619 project and you know, what did she think? What did she think about critical race theory? And did she think critical race theory was being taught in the schools? gave a kind of 
very bland uh, definition of critical race theory and said she didn't think it was being taught in school. So then he was very clever and he said, well now, I look <laughs> at the recommended reading list for Georgetown Day School on which you sit in the board of directors. And he pulls out these two books. Yeah, he read are, from it. <laughs> more than two books. Yeah, but anyway, there were yeah. certain there were certainly things that had to do with well, uh, she did concede there. at that point, as I recall, she that said, she, she really, said, "Oh well, I meant public schools, not private schools, or something." Well, not, not only that, not but very... she she also said that she didn't think that children should be told that they are intrinsically racist or anti-racist just because their skin color. So, I mean, well, that that's was a good. very good position. That's yeah, a very that was right a good position. position. But you well, know, I, think I you, thought it was I. I think you both are being far too generous. <laughs> <laughs> okay, think you can correct us, David. Was, when she was asked about her judicial philosophy. Uh, it had a big uh, door in it in which you can basically redefine what words mean. Uh, when she was asked, for example, I mean, here we, here we have a, of a person right. who was selected specifically because one, she's, she's a, a woman, female, right? Two, she's black, and three, she's a progressive. Right. And if she so doesn't know her, how to define yeah. the word woman. How did Biden know how to define? This is a big problem with progressives in general. The whole trans view is that these are simply subjective terms that you can interpret or reinterpret or redefine as you see fit. So uh, why didn't Biden select a biological man and call him a woman? Uh, so why was she selected as a woman? She doesn't know. So there are federal statutes that affect women and men. So how is she going to interpret that? Well, she's going to interpret it by redefining the terms. <clears throat> so that's why she would not answer the question, how you define what a woman From is. Senator Blackburn, which actually was yes. absolutely the opposite of what she had said <clears throat> the previous day to Mike Lee when she said, right. a judge is bound by the text and what it meant to those who drafted it. So my, my mind yeah. immediately went to the Civil Rights Act, no yeah. discrimination on account of sex. <clears throat> mm -hmm. The word sex meant a certain thing to those who enacted it and drafted right. it back in the 1960s, but she's now unwilling to recognize the meaning of a word like woman. Which she is, wants a different meaning to the word. Okay. She wants to allow so, the meaning to float. <clears throat> that's right. That's exactly right. And so she was actually that, not giving a true answer to Mike Lee. Right. Okay. Let's, let's take up the issue of critical race theory. So critical race theory is to say that people's uh, views and society and the law and business and everything else is based entirely on race. Race is the determining Including the teaching of mathematics. Including <laughs> the teaching of mathematics. Um, but if that's true, then your view about the Constitution is based on race too. So then you can't possibly believe that the wording or the, the language that was used in any statute has any meaning other than race. And yet she's on the board, as, as Bill pointed out, the Georgetown Day School. Now she claimed that as a judge, she's not involved in the curricula. But the Georgetown Day School, which is a member of what's the National Association of Private Schools, I believe, in their school. mission statement, their advice to trustees is that every trustee has a responsibility and that is enforced at the Georgetown Day School. And, and the this National also relates- Association of Independent Schools is heavily right. into this That's it. critical theory yes. stuff. Absolutely. Okay, what about the issue of the uh, uh, Holly and Cruz and others were asking her about her uh, decisions as far as sentencing 
when she was vice chairman of the uh, Sentencing Commission, and then her own rulings in seven court cases uh, pertaining to child pornography. Now, we need to understand what child pornography is. Child pornography is the uh, recording of acts that are rape of children. Children do not have the consent, these are nine-year-olds, 10-year-olds, whatever, of adult men raping children. The people who are involved in recording these, distributing and selling are complicit, they're accomplices mm -hmm. to the act of rape. So her view, and there's a quote here by her um, in response to her discussion with Senator Hawley, it says, she says, well, pedophiles are truly shunned in this society. And um, so Hawley's response to that is, who is the, vic is, is the victim here or the victims the victims? And so uh, she's playing to play games again. So this is a reflection of progressive just, just to restate what you're trying to say, David, you're okay. saying that she was suggesting that the pedophile was a victim yes. and not that the child who was subjected to the sexual assault is a victim. Right, especially if there is a see. racial involvement. Okay. <laughs> so the, the, the bottom line here is that her view of the law is completely different from the founder's view or the originalist view or the textual view. These are view. all very important additions to the situation. So right. one I, thing that happened with her nomination is that Ilya Shapiro, who was the incoming head of the Center on the Constitution at Georgetown Law Center, uh, posted a tweet saying that there was a better candidate than she, and it was a person of Indian subcontinent background, and uh, but didn't fit in Biden's category of black. So anyway, so he was speaking at Hastings Law School in San Francisco, and he was mobbed. His speech was prevented. Uh, you know, a very vocal minority of the students at Hastings Law School didn't want to hear his opinion on the Constitution or on the nomination process. And so it was written up pretty widely, and it also he had a column in the Wall Street Journal on this. So this is part of strange things that are happening in law schools. Mm. And, and <clears throat> Yale had an incident also along these lines. Yeah, the uh, uh, chief counsel of the Alliance Defending Freedom, Kristen Wagoner, was basically shouted down when she was discussing a legal case at Yale Law School. Uh, and she had to be posted out by the police and put into a squad car to be carried away. Uh, the, apparently, the, the record shows that the faculty who were present at this Yale event were expecting the dean to kind of step in and quell the disturbance, but they went on shouting for at least 10 minutes to shout her down, uh, shout the speaker down, uh, and uh, the, the dean never stepped in. <clears throat> and ultimately, uh, on Thursday last week, I read that a DC Circuit Court judge named Lawrence Silberman actually sent an email around to all federal judges in the United States urging them to take a look at what happened at Yale and questioning w whether a student uh, who had been involved in shutting down uh, Kristen Wagoner's speech at Yale should be disqualified from potential clerkships because of having displayed the inability to take 
different points of view seriously. That's a pretty serious reaction when a sitting U.S. circuit judge warns other judges that maybe Yale law students shouldn't be taken to clerkships. Something serious is going on here. I I commend Silverman. Oh, me too. So brave. And the the other thing about this is uh, this particular event was on freedom of speech. Right. Mm -hmm. And how left and and right could find common ground. Right. And then these demonstrators. Right. So you have someone from the American uh, Freedom Alliance and from the American Humanist Association who were both in this, in this court case. Who are not usually friends on right. the same side. But they're both defending the First Amendment. And the person, uh, the man from the Humanist Society, American Humanist Society, uh, was speaking on a court case that actually protected civil rights, the civil rights of gay people and other people. So. The, the absurdity of this is a number of levels, but I think Silverman is right. So if the, if the Yale Law School cannot police its own events based on the First Amendment and the legal aspects of the First Amendment, what good are the students? Well, I think it's not so much the First Amendment. It's that Yale has a policy and Hastings has a policy and there's supposed to be civility and university-sponsored yes. sure. events, yeah. and so it's not—it's—it's it's that if they don't have a, an ability to adhere to that, how are they going to be able to fairly judge true First Amendment cases right. that involve mm-hmm. government repression? Right. But if but if you're going to protest a First Amendment-based yeah. well, event, yeah. claiming <laughs> by shutting it down, you simply are not prepared to go into the profession of law, I would say. I think and, that's a very good point, David. And these these perspectives are you know, mutating, I would even say metastasizing throughout higher education and maybe throughout parts of the corporate world as well in a very disturbing way. There's a certain point of view that's considered acceptable on these issues. And if you don't take that point of view, then you're regarded as not simply mistaken, but as evil. And if someone is... If this woman was uh, from the ADF is accused by these protesters of saying something evil, well, then they're they're positioning themselves as being sort of standing up to evil and wickedness by shouting her down. And the reclassification of disagreement over uh, the conceptual uh, apparatus of progressive gender theory, if if that if different differences of opinion about that progressive theory are now classified as good versus evil. Uh, how can we talk to one another? How can educate? How can educational institutions educate our future leaders? And is this where all of America's leadership comes from? This kind of crucible of uh, politically correct speech—it's worrisome to me for the future of leadership in the U.S. Well, I think it's it's all grounded in this whole postmodern uh, fashion, <laughs> and it seeped into many different areas, not the least of which are intellectual centers. Um, the critical race theory came out of Harvard Law School, where Jackson got her law degree and also undergraduate degree. Uh, and even though Derek Bell is passed away, who essentially originated a lot of this stuff, it seeped across through essentially um, progressive elite institutions. So we see it in the predictable places. Um, and But I think what, what is happening in a positive sense, is that as more and more people see the absurdity and the hypocrisy uh, of 
the implications of this, they're turning away from it. Uh, and I think mm -hmm. that's also one of the reasons why Biden's popularity is in the tank, because you know, he says one thing and what he's doing is creating exactly the problem that he claims he's solving. We have covered a lot of territory today, gentlemen. <clears throat> Maybe one last parting shot is worth a, a mention for, well, I guess, for, for laughs. Uh, did you see where Twitter ha spanked the Babylon Bee? Twitter yeah. shut down Babylon Bee for a, a couple of days, at least, maybe more. No, uh, it's still shut down. It's still shut down. It's still shut down. Oh, I thought it was temporary. Yeah, they will not restore it until they oh. take down the tweet. Okay. And the tweet and, was, you want to describe it for us? <laughs> well, uh, it, was, it was triggered by uh, the USA Today picking uh, this assistant secretary of HHS, who's a transgender um, person, as woman of the year. So of all the women who actually are women, including leading feminists, a man is picked as woman of the year, right? I mean, even our vice president is actually a woman. Right. How about that? And so in response, the B uh, came out with this tweet where they said that they had picked the same person as their 2022 man of the year. And that was so intolerable. Now, the Babylon Bee is a satire publication. Right. They, they send up everyone. They say crazy things about everybody. Uh, no one has a sense of humor at Twitter. They, so, well, so the Babylon Bee on Facebook is having the time of their lives about exactly. this. Exactly. <laughs> they have posted, <laughs> there's a famous segment from Star Trek <clears throat> that is how many lights are there and... Picard is imprisoned and he says there's only four and this people are trying to break him in the same way that Winston Smith is broken by the inner party in, 19, in the novel 1984 where the question is it's two and two, four, or is it whatever the party decides? Mm -hmm. So they did a thing about that. They've, yep. they've just, uh, they're having a delightful time mocking Twitter for this. That's right, and and the uh, so the CEO Dylan I think is is really commendable because he said there is no I forget the exact quote but there's absolutely no way we're going to take it down we're not going to because we're we're a site that is focusing on satire but we're not going to back <laughs> off on the truth. Plus, if someone plus. tries to tell you that two and two is not four, yeah, stick stick to your to your guns. That's that's right. That's right. right. And that, that reminds me, of course, of our new math curriculum in California that's not only full of progressive education, but it's full of political content, social justice wiring, environmental activism, teachers trying to be political activists, teachers trying to train up their students in math class to become political activists. They toned it down a little bit since the version of a little less than a year ago, but it's still really not acceptable. Right. Uh, I'm glad you're fighting the good fight on that one, Bill. Thank you. Thank you. And, and I would point out that you know some of the, the common threads here are that uh, progressive theorists over the last 30 years or so have put forward a particular conceptual apparatus on race and on gender issues. Okay. So I get that. I've heard it. I understand it. Um, it's a matter of contention. Is the conceptual apparatus of progressive theory correct or not correct? People can disagree about that. But we've gotten to the point where 
disagreement with the progressive uh, conceptual framework has now been classified as evil, as sin, as wickedness. And people are feeling because of that, that they are authorized to take measures against it, to literally well, silence people or uh, push them physically. It's, it's worrisome when disagreement over a contentious issue like progressive theory uh, is no longer able to be discussed, but rather becomes a matter of absolute right and absolute wrong. Well, as, as my, as my co-author, Saev Vorman, and I say in a column that we published on this math question, are they, they're, this politicized math is catering to the 12% of Californians who consider themselves very liberal, mm -hmm. which is slightly higher than the percent nationally that consider themselves very liberal. California is a somewhat more liberal state. What about the people who don't consider themselves very liberal? Uh, uh, they get to pay their tax dollars to have the public schools indoctrinate uh, their children or It's called you know, state religion. Yeah. It's called well, school uh, prayer. <laughs> it's, it's a new not, kind of school prayer. It's a distortion of math and it's very ugly from a point of view of a good society. Yeah, it, it's, a, it's really a sort of a secular cult and it's intolerant. Quite frankly, because they can't defend their own view, uh, and they can't tolerate anyone who thinks differently, and they don't want to lose their position of power in society. So what you do is you shut people down and you compel them to comply. Um, but I think them again. The more they do that, the more people are alienated because most people don't believe in that cult, and they have common sense and they have. Uh, values and uh, they are interested in their families and they want their children to be well educated and they want them to succeed. They don't want to live in high crime areas and so they're rebelling against it. And I think we're seeing that in California and in states all over the country, especially the bluest areas, are seeing this response as one of the strongest responses for, uh, for obvious reasons because it simply doesn't hold water. So um, thank you both for your interesting analysis of all these issues. Um, we invite our friends, of course, from around the country and elsewhere around the world who are with us uh, to go to our website, independent.org. We have a lot of resources on these and other issues uh, where we try and find a way to uphold individual liberty and human, human dignity, human worth and dignity uh, with a reasoned research and evidence. Um, so with that said, uh, final words from you, David, for our friends. Thank you for joining with us, and thank you, Graham, and thank you, Bill. Final words from Bill. I echo that. Thank you, Graham. Thank you, David. We look forward to seeing you all next time on Independent Outlook. Take care.